Welcome to another episode of Research Encounter, a Prisma podcast presenting a conversation between a researcher and day school practitioners. My name is Elliot Rabin, and I'm Prisma's Director of Thought Leadership. Today's podcast takes a look at early childhood education in Jewish day schools, zooming in on the important work that goes on there, and later on, zooming out to some of the larger systemic issues facing the field. Our guests today are Dr. Anna Hartman, who is the Director of Early Childhood Excellence at the the Jewish United Fund in Chicago and the Director of the Paradigm Project. Anna is also the author of a recent dissertation, uh, which which forms the foundation of the conversation today. Carla Goldberg is the Director of Early Childhood and Admissions at Akiba Schechter Jewish Day School in Chicago's Hyde Park. She has been a teacher at Akiba for 32 years and the director for 27 years. Abby Aloni is the head of early childhood at Bernard Zell Anche Emmett Day School, an independent Jewish day school located in the Lakeview area of Chicago. Entering her 25th year at Bernard Zell, Abby moved from the classroom to administration in 2008 as head of the lower school and has held her current position since 2016. Before we go into the meat of the conversation, perhaps we'll start by discussing the settings where each of the people work, including if you are in a school, whether your school is Reggio and what that means for those of you who, for those of us who don't know, uh, or only have a, a, a vague idea and what the overall approach of your school's early childhood education is. Why don't we start with Carla? Great. Thank you. My school is a preschool through eighth grade uh, school on the south side of Chicago. Um, We are in the University of Chicago neighborhood, so we have a lot of families who come to us from really all over the world um, and are looking for best quality in early childhood education and beyond. And um, we are a Reggio-inspired program. Uh, We feel like you can never say that you're a Reggio school unless you are in Reggio, Um, but we are a Reggio-inspired program. We believe deeply in the philosophy and in play-based learning, and that's that's who we are. Great. If you would just just tell us a little bit about what that means. You mentioned play-based learning. What is Reggio? What does it mean to be an official Reggio school or unofficially inspired by Reggio? So... A Reggio-inspired school really believes that children are capable and competent and that you are going to frame the learning happening in your classroom around the students' play, around their interests, around their conversations, and that a study can happen from actually watching and observing children and what they're doing and then going deeper into the learning like that. It is a deep dive into the learning. It's not doing something different every week, but really taking a deep dive into what is happening and what the children are interested in. Um, We bring a lot of nature into the classroom. We do a lot of learning outdoors. We believe very strongly in nature-inspired learning. Um, And we believe in being present and taking our time with our children and not rushing the process and really um, thinking about having thoughtful and meaningful activities 
um, that the children are engaged in hands-on every day. When I hear your description, I think, well, maybe really all all education should be like that and all life should be like that, right? But we'll we'll get there a little bit later. I want to I want to move on to Abby and could you tell us something about your school? Sure. So my school is also a preschool. We started three years old through eighth grade uh, Jewish day school. We call ourselves a community Jewish day school, which means really our population um, takes in Jewish families from all over the spectrum in Chicago. Um, we too are a, a Reggio inspired school and similar, you know, very similar, obviously, obviously pedagogically to what Carla said. And I think I might add that um, a few more components of both of our pro- programs is that we um, we promote teachers as mentors and guides who are emotionally responsive to children. And we also uh, feel it's really important to create a partnership with parents and the greater community around our institutions. Could you just clarify for me briefly, um, what would it take for you to be not Reggio's inspired, but actually Reggio? So no one can be Reggio except Reggio. <laughs> so we always say if a school touts themselves as a Reggio school, there actually is no such thing. It's the pedagogy with which you approach the teaching and learning of the children and adults in your institution. Does that mean that you have to be a school located in Reggio Emilia in Italy to be a, a, a Reggio school? Or Yeah, so I mean, where does this all come from? Um, these, this is a municipal school system uh, in the city of Reggio Emilia, Italy, in northern Italy. Um, and it's the municipal preschools and the municipal infant toddler centers that were built after the Second World War. So that city itself has taken on an educational project for itself, really built by the parents and the community in response to fascism. Uh, and since that time, they have invited a lot of other educators into their approach and to learn about them. So the schools themselves in Reggio Emilia are the municipal preschools of Reggio Emilia, uh, and the rest of us learn from them. And one thing that's great about this approach, as opposed to other philosophies of education, is that it's a very open approach. Uh, and the first thing that the Italians would tell you if you'd study with them is, who are you? Who is your community? What are you all about? And how can we help you through our some of our specific pedagogical practices and our way of thinking to be the most you in your pedagogy that you can be? Have any of you spent time in uh, in Reggio Emilia in Italy? You, you all have. Wow. We all have and we have together. So um, we have been very lucky to have um, made that journey together along with other uh, teachers that um, from our schools. Um, and it, it is a journey and it's a lifelong journey. You know, um, I, I've been able to go more than once and um, look forward to sending more teachers um, soon. And it's um, it really is a lifelong journey. As a Reggio-inspired learner, you're never done. We'll hear uh, hopefully more about this uh, a little bit later. And especially I'm interested in how you get your teachers to become Reggio teachers. But I want to turn to Anna and just ask her to talk uh, briefly now about your work before we get into the research. I'd be happy to. Um, So I spend my time, I have a day job at the Jewish Federation in Chicago, also known as JUF. um, And it's thanks to JUF that we're all able to make a lot of these journeys um, to Reggio Emilia, um, our community with various generous donors 
um, has really invested a lot in early childhood um, and really cares about uh, excellence in in teaching and learning. Um, and so in my job at JUF, um, I support the 37 Jewish early childhood centers here uh, in a few different ways. One is with a push toward excellence in systems and in pedagogy, um, and that can take multiple different fashions and forms. Um, we also work here very closely on data collection with our schools, uh, which was something that was brand new uh, to us as a community um, maybe only five years ago. And now we are able to collect and analyze and move on data around staff satisfaction, parent perceptions, uh, and many more areas, including financial benchmarks. Uh, and in recent years, we've moved more into the public policy arena, really advocating for uh, better policies for early childhood education and increasingly for prudent uh, and useful uh, government investments in our programs as well. And for many years, I have been the director of the Paradigm Project, which I co-founded with some beloved friends and colleagues. Uh, and we continue to really push for progressive Jewish early childhood education. And by progressive, I mean pedagogically, not religiously. Uh, and we have for many years been gathering educators for spirited convenings in person and online to be able to shift the paradigm in education so that, as you said, Elliot, all education can work uh, in ways that are as exciting and good for children and families and the community as what we do in early childhood. There's so much there I want to unpack, but I really want to get now get to your research and uh, what you've learned. If you could, you know, in uh, just a few minutes, so I'm sure you could go, you could go a long time on it, but uh, just in a few minutes, tell us about uh, what you studied, what you learned, and then I'll ask for feedback from Abby and Carla. So one of the aspects of the Reggio approach that I always found a little mystifying is that the educators there talk a lot about children's theories, children's theories. And I, it's talked about a lot and never really defined. And I knew it was important. I wasn't sure exactly what it was. Uh, and I'm always interested in how the Reggio approach enters our programs. So I found myself wondering, how, what are the theories or the mental models in the minds of children that they have in our programs about Judaism and Jewish life? A few other ways to say that would be how do children understand Judaism or Jewish life? You could say to yourself, oh, when I was younger, I used to think about this big idea in this way. But now that I'm older, I understand it differently. So when you're young, when you're a young child in one of these programs, you're still making sense of what these things are. Um, and to do that, I'll tell you a little bit about my process, but I want to just lead with the punchlines of some of the things that I found in working with uh, the teachers who do this kind of work. Um, I found that children in Jewish early childhood programs enter their programs with three fundamental theories. And again, another way to say a theory here is your mental model or the way that you understand the systems, the processes, the relationships at work in the world. So the children are coming into our programs already with three major theories that underpin every action that the child takes in a classroom. So a child enters by thinking, the world is mine to make sense of. The child thinks the world is mine to make sense of together with you. And the world is mine to make sense of together with you using my whole self. Uh, and we can talk as the day goes on. This podcast goes on about what some of these mean. But what I was able to do with each of these is figure out what are the teaching practices that help you hew to each of these theories? Because what's so important is that when a teacher really is responsive 
to those theories that the child has uh, and teaches with different approaches that will uh, really maximize those theories, a fourth theory emerges by the time you graduate from a Jewish early childhood program. And that, that fourth theory is that a child can make their mark on Judaism. And what's so astounding about that, right? That a child feels like this is my tradition. And what I argue in my research is that we always ask about, we're transmitting Judaism from one generation to the next, but what does that actually mean? We know as educators, we're not taking something from the brain of the adult and putting it inside the brain of the child, but actually the portrait that's starting to emerge from my research and from that of others is that we're walking the Torah from generation to generation together. We're carrying it together and we're influencing it and we're making it our own. And I just want to add that the research I undertook, how did I come to know all of this, right? In some ways, this is not rocket science. You you know, Carla or Abby could have probably told you this before, but the way I got to it in the research process is that I worked with six teachers from around the country in Jewish early childhood programs. And these were teachers in Reggio-inspired programs. So they were very accustomed to developing learning investigations or curricula that uh, they had not planned when the year started. But these were things that emerged during the year, and they said, let's really make a project out of this. Um, and these were, I interviewed the teachers in these six classrooms, and they were teaching um, toddlers, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, and four-year-olds. Um, and they, I not only did I interview them, but I also took from them documentation. And what that means is it's a custom in this kind of way of working uh, in Reggio-inspired programs that you will chronicle a lot of what's happening in the classroom. You'll be taking notes on it. You'll be taking photographs. You'll have classroom conversations and you'll transcribe them. So I was able to read all of that, have my interviews, and then in a systematic research process of coding, looking for trends and patterns, I was able to deduce that which I did here. And I just want to give you one small taste of the kinds of things that, you know, what this actually looked like in classrooms, just to give you a taste. So one of one classroom, a teacher that I'll call Bailey, uh, her four-year-old class in, had a year-long project that involved weaving and challah covers and tzedakah. Another teacher was exploring with toddlers the story of Breshit, of Genesis, the creation of the world, and also dark and light. And this teacher found a lot of ways that young children were grappling with developmental milestones of separation and what that meant for them and being scared of the dark and what was that about. And we also heard from children who were studying mezuzot and just the the uh, Shabbat table itself. So fascinating. And there's so much to talk about. I, I want to just start with something that really struck me in what you said, the four mental models, right? They exude so much optimism, so much confidence, right? A student feels that they can make that the world is mine to make sense of, that they can make their mark on Judaism. Now, I would have expected maybe that the school and the approach, the pedagogical approach would kind of have those working assumptions, but I wouldn't necessarily have assumed that the children themselves had the, that kind of confident outlook coming in. So I'm wondering if you can Talk about where you think they they get that from, especially Judaism. I, I mean, I still I'm not sure I can make my mark on Judaism. So, so I'm wondering I'm wondering how how they get those kind of ideas. Well, I'll start in case anyone wants to give an answer too. Well, just on the end of it, I mean, 
that is something that happens when you're in a classroom over time. How do you get that sense, Elliot? By the by the time you leave an early childhood classroom in the Jewish community, you've undertaken real uh, projects with your teacher. Like the in my study, the class mezuzah was missing. And so the children had to figure out how are we going to make a mezuzah? What is a mezuzah? What should we put in it? Who do we need to ask? And so you're getting the sense that, okay, this Judaism thing is something that I'm I'm actively participating in. But going back and who children are and what they bring, and boy, children are optimistic, aren't they? Uh, you know, when you think of the world as mine to make sense of using my whole self, like children like to lick things uh, because they're getting to know them. Like that's what a baby is doing. So like, that's what they're doing. Um, uh, if you've ever seen a baby walk across a room, uh, uh, like a, a toddler walk across a room, you know that they're going to notice every single small thing. If there's a speck of dust, or dirt in your living room, they will find it on your carpet because they are seeking out patterns and they're looking across. Um, the neuro, the neuroscientist Alison Gopnik has written a lot about children and this kind of mental model. And she says, uh, children learn about the world in much the same way that scientists do by conducting experiments, analyzing statistics and forming intuitive theories. And she says, and, and maybe this is what you're getting at, Elliot, that, uh, these theories really are like scientific theories, but they are largely unconscious rather than conscious. And I think that's one of the great challenges of working in early childhood uh, is to really try to understand what's happening in the minds of each of our children that we work with, because they're not going to tell us. Uh, and so a lot of the work is trying to see what's beneath the surface. As as Anna was talking, it really brought to mind to me um, the idea that Carla and I are working on with our faculty as they work with children is looking at big Jewish ideas, big Jewish values, um, and how do we bring that to life for the children? How do we help them explore that? Um, so one of the examples I could give is um, during Purim, for example, obviously one of the big things we want children to walk away with is the idea of Esther being so brave. And what does that even mean? What does it mean to you as you think about the story and hear the story and explore through drama and play? What does it mean to be brave? And why is that so important? And so we provide what we call invitations to learning, where we set things up for children, where they can just, we kind of call it mess about, use the materials in any way they think of. And then as the teachers, as we, we think of educators in a Reggio-inspired pedagogy as um, researchers, teacher researchers. So they are setting up these invitations. They're watching how children engage. They're listening to how they speak with an, one another. And then they're taking it to a deeper level, which we then call like a provocation. We're provoking their uh, thinking to see where they go. When we were doing uh, Purim this year, the children created their own Purim play, and it matched some of what was true to the Purim story, but it also was their interpretation of what was going on and what brave voices sound like and how are they brave in their in their own day-to-day -day living in the classroom or at home. Um, so this really illustrates that idea of focusing in on children's thinking and focusing in on the idea of what does it mean to be Jewish? And what does it mean for you as a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old? And how can you impact the world around you? Um, I love that story, Abby. It makes me think of so many different pieces of the Purim story and 
and where children's minds can go. Um, I, I wanted to share a brief story of a kindergarten class that um, the beginning of the year, the teacher was exploring the concept of the lunar calendar with them and um, just talking with them about it and had not planned that this was going to be a large focus. And the children were so fascinated and had such incredible questions. And then it turned into conversations around creation and what their ideas were. And um, right in the middle of class, in the middle of a conversation, the teacher said, you know, I think we should go um, ask one of our rabbis um, these questions. And so they they took a field trip across the atrium, I call it, um, into the into the grade school building and went and found um, one of our rabbis who was working with a third and fourth grade classroom and came in and sat down on the rug and said, we have some questions for you. And um, really started to do a deep dive into what what was going on and what their questions were. And I love that the rabbi in the classroom, those third and fourth grade students, gave this the time and the space that it deserved and that they stopped what they were doing, recognized the importance and the depth of these questions, and unpacked some of these pieces with, with the children. And I think that's just a really important piece of you, you know, what Reggio Inspired Learning is and how it can look across a whole school. Then this then grew into um, each kindergarten student actually created their own mural and their own story of creation. And it could have been a group story, you know, it really could have been, but the teacher was listening and recognizing that they had different ideas and that she wanted each child's voice to be heard. Um, and so she gave them the opportunity, again, over quite a long time to write their own creation story and illustrate it and put it up as a long mural for people to see their learning. What you've been describing and what Anna talks about and researched couple of things jumped to mind. First of all, this idea of raising every child's voice, right, is, uh, is, is, is kind of a foundational to your work. And also this act of uh, the teacher as a researcher getting into how children think, which is not an easy thing, you know, for someone who's not involved with it, it doesn't sound like an easy thing to do for anybody, let alone for uh, toddlers and uh, and young students. I'm wondering, you know, uh, if you want to talk about what those processes uh, are like. You've already talked a little bit. And, and also, what does that kind of environment that you create in the classroom through these processes, what do they do for the students? One of the things, and I feel like I was taught this, Carla, you probably too, by Anna when we first met. Anna's so good, even with adults, asking the, a question like, huh, tell me more about that. And that's one of the things that we work hard to train our educators as they're looking at children to not be, oh, I see they're asking this question. Let me answer it for them. It's to say, huh, tell me more. What are you thinking? I don't know. What do you think? How might we figure that out together? And also helping the children develop dialogue amongst each other, as opposed to always looking to answer something that the teacher's asking. Rather, we want them to learn in a developmentally appropriate way how to dialogue with another, with another child, 
and how to be good listeners and also how to think about how to respond, which is very complex with young children. It takes a lot, a lot of practice, but that really makes the atmosphere richer and more rigorous for the children. And we know nowadays parents are always saying, oh, I want a rigorous rigorous um, academic environment for children. And I think Carla and I will say to any parent coming into our school, wow, you know, play is really the most rigorous environment for young children, because that, again, is how they're figuring out the world around them. And then the intellectual activity going on is really developing um, that sense of agency for the children and also truly the most authentic way that the children are learning and exploring their own identity, their own Jewish identity, how they relate with others, um, foundational literacy and mathematical skills. So all those things are happening. And I think our schools are unapologetically play-based because we know that that's the way that young children learn best. And certainly they would, you know, regurgitate things that we tell them if that's what we thought, you know, we don't do that, but they would regurgitate it for us, but it really is not helping them to grow in an intellectual or social emotional way. They have to experience and think and take risks. And we, as the educators have to provide a really safe environment for them in which to do so. Um, We often hear, Children don't learn from teachers they don't like. You know, whether true or not, the fact is that we have to create a space where children feel known and a sense of belonging and have a real connection with the adults who are there and feel really comfortable making mistakes, that that is where real learning happens when we make mistakes. Uh, At our school, we say it's not, not a good day if you don't have a good struggle. And so these are all the things that we're putting into our environments for the children to really like work on that metacognition, like, you know, the learning about learning. Carla, um, one thing that Abby brought up was this idea of play. So if you could tell me, what do you understand by that word? What is good play in the classroom? Play is really children's work. I mean, that is the work of childhood is play. And What we are trying to do, as Abby mentioned, is really set the environment up for these kind of deep inquiries using play. And so it's having personal an environment that is aesthetically pleasing. So you are excited to be there. It kind of creates a sense of wonder. And so that can be with using materials that you might not see every day or see every day, but didn't realize you could play with them. Um, which could be, you know, we use all kinds of materials in, in our schools that you wouldn't think of using with a child for constructing, for building. You know, you could be using um, spools of empty tapes, so the cardboard construction pieces. You could be using empty tubes. You could be using all kinds of things, but it's open-ended play. It is not, there's not a way that a child should know how to play with that. It's really, again, helping them to ask the question, what am I going to do with this? What is that there for? And how am I going to use it? Um, So it's really kind of looking at the materials, looking at the environment, um, again, being present in that play. And that means 
taking the time to be on the rug with the children, to listen, to be engaging them with the play, to be helping them to extend the play, um, to be working on the social emotional learning of how to interact with each other, which as Abby mentioned is listening to each other and being able to respond. And that then can extend the play rather than stop it. Um, so that that is a, a really important piece of play. And just really opening up the experiences. It's often experiences that are um, multi-sensory, you know, so there might be water, there might be sand, there might be paint, um, just so that there are so many things, opportunities to engage um, with the play is really what we're looking to create in that classroom. And I want to, I want to ask you a question. So what happens in that, in that play space and in that space where the teacher is really tuned in to what, what children are saying and thinking and how they're acting and interacting, how does that shape their, their Judaism, their understanding and their kind of just um, implicit uh, emotions and whole kind of interior Jewish landscape? So the first answer I want to give is, we don't completely know. I really want to set up the opportunity for more and more teachers to be researching this themselves. Those are the real experts uh, to be documenting what's happening. I think we could be in a situation in um, 20 years where the brain research is developed enough that people could be monitoring what's happening in the minds of children and we would have a different sense of that. Um, so I want to open the opportunity for more of this. I can say a few things. Uh, one is that in general, there's a uh, an early childhood theorist, Lev Vygotsky, a theorist in general education. And what he has posited is that the role of the teacher is really critical in those moments. Carla said the teacher's sitting on the carpet. So Vygotsky would talk about the zone of proximal development, that there are these concepts and ideas that are just out of the reach of the children's cognitive abilities, but with the teacher working as a scaffold, that teacher can bridge uh, the gap for that child to help them get to the next ability to understand something. So that's really critical. And I think there's been a lot of research among sociocultural theorists about how human beings appropriate the artifacts of their culture. Uh, and I haven't seen a lot of research of that in our field yet, but I think that that is the beginnings of what we are thinking about here. So you will see in a Jewish early childhood classroom, a lot of ritual objects, right? So already these are symbols and children already can read and understand the idea of symbols at this age. These are symbols, the etrog holder, the etrog box is something that symbolizes the etrog. And what does the etrog symbolize? It symbolizes this holiday, but it symbolizes something deeper from different aspects of Jewish history and Jewish life. Uh, and children are relating with these objects. Um, and we see that with challah covers. And we see in my study, children really trying to understand what's the purpose of a challah cover. One challah cover that children in a classroom in the New York area saw uh, was uh, very soft in texture. And they said the children wondered if maybe the challah cover was keeping the challah cozy or warm. And maybe they asked the rabbi if it was a requirement for the challah cover to be fluffy for the same reason, right? So the child already has been taken care of in their life. They're used to someone taking care of them. Therefore, they're bringing empathy 
to the objects of their culture. So I think these are questions that we want to look at more into the future. How are children appropriating these artifacts of their culture? But it seems to be related into this process of children making their mark on Judaism and having that fundamental understanding as they depart our programs. And in the case of Abby and Carla, go on to a next grade at their school. I love that example of the the soft, cuddly fella cover. And it reminds me of actually something in Jewish tradi- tradition that it often said that the uh, challah cover is there to to help the challah not feel insulted because you're saying the blessing first over the wine, right? Where normally the challah comes first. So I I think the the student is absolutely spot on. I want to talk now, uh, Anna, more about your work. I saw the par- on the Paradigm Project website. I think that. You aim to help schools strive towards or support them in achieving uh, excellence in early childhood education. So I'm wondering how you understand excellence and how you try to impart it. Well, first, with humility, uh, you know, it's there's so much excellence already out there in the field. Um, and at the Paradigm Project, we always talk about multiplying and nurturing the seeds of excellence because there's such great things. How can we be a catalyst to help people move ahead? When I think of excellence, I have some ideas for myself of what I think are great and so important, uh, and I don't want to shy away from that. And I also think it's about it's about a process that you know you identifying whoever you are as an educator. You know, there's a there's a place I'm going to, and I'm on I'm on my way. I'm doing all the things to get myself there, and lo and behold, as I get closer to my goal. I've moved the goalpost farther. So it's this constant quest. Um, But I will say at the core, uh, it's a real focus on relationships right at the very center. So an excellent place, an excellent program, you know, because you, you feel like what's happening in this place. People are so connected to each other. They speak so respectfully to one another. And you can see that with the way you interact at the front desk, the way that you interact in the carpool line. Uh, everything. There is a true love of humanity and of individual human beings one to another. And those relationships extend to the way you care for the environment, uh, you care for the things in your classroom. Uh, and we all know this is what we need throughout our societies right now, uh, so much more. So excellence at its heart is incredible relationships everywhere you turn. Um, excellence is really having an attention to the fact that children and families during this time are becoming who they are. Uh, And when you really know that that's the work that's happening, it makes all the interactions so much more important because that's really what's happening. Um, Boy, anyone who's raised children can see the role of the environments of the places they went to school. um, And it really makes a difference. And so real attention to that. I mean, you hear Carla and Abby, it's helpful to hear when they say how long they've been in their positions because then you can say, okay, well, maybe after a few more years of my position, I could get to this level. But you know that what they're talking about is with great seriousness because the task is serious um, and it's incredibly joyful. I do feel like it needs to be added here that, I mean, I think we need more research on this, but because children bring so much awe and wonder into their work and so much joy, right? It's raining and children are jumping in the rain out of excitement it's a reciprocal relationship. So that joy does impact the adults in those environments. So if our teachers were being not in, if our teachers were being properly compensated across education, especially in early childhood, we would have nothing but joy. This would be only an uplifting profession. 
Um, and then the last thing I'll add here uh, about excellence is uh, a curriculum that I will call surprising but inevitable. I recently heard that um, uh, a good television show finale is surprising but inevitable. Uh, so you can be delighted by the curriculum that emerges in these classrooms because they come from all kinds of places. We have some great stories. I used to have a student who asked, wanted to know more about those mysterious fish balls uh, that were served at Kiddush in synagogue. Uh, how could a ball be a fish or a fish be a ball? And this brought us to a whole study of gefilte fish culminating with making gefilte fish. And Joan Nathan was a grandparent in our school and she came and taught us about it, reading the carp in the bathtub. So that's surprising and delightful. Um, but isn't it inevitable? Of course, a child doesn't really understand what's happening in the adult world. And of course, he wants to know. Um, and that kind of curricular excellence, that's what we all I mean, that's really where we want to be. And we want to set the conditions. This is why I do work that's not only pedagogical. We want to set the conditions to have that kind of excellence uh, available to every Jewish child. So I think what we've heard today really reinforces some a message that we need to hear quite often, which is that early childhood centers are are really centers of excellent education in so many ways, and they do things that you know aren't necessarily done in other grades, but maybe should be. You know, an emphasis on joy, an emphasis on play, an emphasis on raising every voice, on discovery, on uh, helping each child on their own personal and intellectual quest, uh, working re with real attunement to what's age appropriate. And I'm wondering, since both of you work in lar within larger schools, and actually, I think, Carla, you have a, a, a larger role than just uh, early childhood administrator. Can you talk about the way that the kind of Reggio-inspired work of your early childhood inspires and informs the work of the rest of the school? I truly believe that the Reggio-inspired learning that happens in early childhood is just, is a thread that connects us to our grade school. And that that thread is, has really gotten stronger over the years um, in the grade school, both the administration and the grade school educators recognizing the excellence that starts in early childhood education and the foundation that starts in early childhood education. They recognize the early childhood educators as the people to go and show them how to document the learning in their classroom. You know, you want that to come and look at the walls of the preschool and see what the learning is lo looks like and then to try and do some of that documentation on their own, um, the environments that there's a lot to learn from how we set up our environments. Um, I believe that this thread really is happening in our grade schools now, and I'm so proud of that. I'm so excited that this incredibly joyful and hands-on and kind of open-ended learning is not stopping after kindergarten, but that it is continuing. Um, our grade school is very project-based and um, the children are, are um, showcasing their learning through dance, through song, through art. Um, it's incredible what's happening. And um, it excites me that there is such synergy between early childhood and the grade school. Um, 
We, they also do design challenges now on Fridays in these multi-age groups where um, the students are given a box of materials and a challenge to create a specific thing, but then no directions. And so then all of those skills that are worked on during the week are then kind of culminating in this project that they are creating together as they're listening, as they're debating, as they're working together, as they're incorporating the younger voices into this group um, and creating something together. And um, it just, it makes me feel so good to see that that learning has continued. And I know that's what's happening at Abby's school too, that it really is the thread for us and that the synergy is happening. And it's exciting to see how that is growing more over the years. It's interesting. My, uh, as we finished the school year and my ed, ed educational administration team came together for our, you know, end of the year retreat, because like the Torah, we just start again, right? As soon as we finish, we start again. So uh, as the leaders, we, um, we were reading together, um, of books called Empowering Educators. There's a series of books that go from kindergarten through eighth grade, through middle school. And we all read different parts of these books and it really spoke to me. And I was able to um, uh, really see how what we do foundationally is really what supports engaging academics throughout children's schooling experience. And, and probably adults as well as we continue to learn. It's this idea of purposeful, purposeful and meaningful learning comes from capitalizing on a natural learning cycle. And what does that mean? It means first generating ideas and goals, then actively experimenting, exploring and problem solving, and then reflecting on experiences and starting again. And that is what a Reggio-inspired pedagogy really believes in and Reggio inspired is is a early childhood right infant toddler centers preschools in fact when you go to Reggio they and you ask so what happens in elementary schools when the kids leave they say we don't really know we don't care we're working on this like this is where we are and then they go off it's not as if this pedagogy is naturally extended through the primary schools and middle schools in Reggio even Reggio Emilia but at our schools I really think it is, and it actually raises up early childhood education where people recognize, you know, what is it? All I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten, like all I ever needed to know I learned in preschool, and we should continue to move that upwards. And I think over the past probably five to seven years, I think there is an understanding that people should look at what... uh these professional educators in early childhood are doing. And we're fortunate, I think, in the Jewish day school space that that is what is happening and that it is a recognition that pedagogically this Reggio Inspired, which is really under the umbrella of a constructivist pedagogy, is really the way it's like the um, best practice for learning, rich learning for all children and probably also all adults. Um, I want to add that one of the great things about this approach and also what day schools are very serious about, and I know that Abby and Carla are, is that we're constantly reading the research. Uh, and, you know, recently we're we're recording this um, in June of 2023, and there's been a lot of negative press this year about Readers and Writers Workshop coming with from Columbia Teachers College and Lucy Calkins, uh, where Lucy Calkins really uh, talked about using children's inherent motivation 
uh, and is the chief way of moving ahead with reading and writing. Unfortunately, the science of reading is now telling us and has been for at least a decade that that model doesn't apply to reading. Reading is different. Reading is not a natural uh, occurrence uh, from an evolution perspective. So you'll see at places like the programs that Carla and Abby run, they're reading all of this research. So in any case, when we're not applying this blind methodology uh, to our work, it's always uh, in, in line with the latest in educational research. And I'll say what I see looking at these two women on the call uh, is that Jewish day schools can be places where education is taken very seriously and where professional development is a really big priority. Um, when I'm looking at Abby and Carla, I am thinking about how many years they've been doing this work and with what dedication and with what resources and their day schools are very serious places when it comes to learning and they've invested in that as well. And it's one of the few places where nowadays you can really see teachers who stick around uh, at Abby's school. seems like every teacher seems to be having a baby and building their family and they all come back. And that's not a regular occurrence. And with Carla's teachers, I've been working in Chicago for eight years. It's the same teachers. She brings in new people, but the people who are there stick around and they come out of retirement, even just to come and work with Carla, as just happened to her this spring. That's a that's a great tribute to your schools and also a great segue to talk to about some of the bigger issues that's facing education as in particular, early childhood. So there was, uh, I just shared with you an article that appeared in Each Jewish Philanthropy yesterday, but, you know, it's not a secret that there is a teacher shortage in general and, and also apparently to the same degree, perhaps more, perhaps less, I don't know, in early childhood as well. So I'm wondering, it sounds like your schools have been fairly successful so far in navigating that. I want to hear from you about that and, you know, how, if you have been successful, what's your, what secret sauce you have? You know, I think Abby and I both feel very grateful for the success that our schools have had in retaining teachers, in attracting really talented and dedicated teachers. And we know that that's not the norm. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to start out by, by, by sharing that. Um, we feel very grateful about it. Um, I do think a lot of it stems from the respect that is given these educators from the administration, from other teachers, from families that, um, across the board, our early childhood educators are really respected in our schools. Um, they are really looked towards as the experts and um, our families are listening to them and asking questions and working in partnership with these teachers. And I think um, that really to create helps to create a unit that wants to stay together um, and, and be together. And that respect of, as Anna mentioned, investing in professional development and everyone's continued growth together. You know, there's all, the only reason I've been able to be at a place for 32 years is I'm not there yet. You know, I, I haven't, I haven't stopped growing. I haven't stopped learning. And, um, and frankly, I haven't stopped being excited about this work. 
And that is so important. And then I think that feeling trickles down and, and the whole staff feels that way. They feel a dedication to each other and to the families and to the program. And I think that's, that's tremendously important. And so for Ab, for Abby and I, we really have talked about that these relationships we've formed, um, they're well known. You know, people know that what Abby's school is like and what my school is like and that, that, that the staff has longevity and that they are respected. And I think then they're attracted to come and work with us. Yeah. And, and I also say, and I mean, it's in all the papers and in the news, but early childhood educators are not paid the way educators in um, elementary, middle school, high schools are paid. Um, and I know at my school, uh, and it's very intentional, the educators in my department are paid on the same scale as fourth grade, eighth grade science teachers, whomever. So they are paid on the same scale as it should be everywhere. But unfortunately, it's not the case. So while you don't, you know, everyone says you don't go into education for the money, but you want people who can um, live and support families and do what they need to do. Uh, and I think at a um, Jewish day schools, that is a is a big possibility. And therefore, you get candidates who come in and already have completed an educational program in college, whether it's in early childhood or in elementary education, um, who have invested and have pedagogical background and best practice, have learned best practice and resource re, uh, research from research. And so we get people who come prepared to begin their journey. And then our goal is continue to support them in an um, educational way, which we are for so fortunate to work with Anna and her team because they provide so much to our schools to be able to provide the best for our teachers um, in terms of learning and growing themselves. But that's not really the case. And it leads me to the question of why, like, I don't understand why this isn't the norm everywhere. And as a result, we are, it's hard enough to get teachers in elementary, high school, middle school, but to find teachers in early education in, in standalone preschools or temple-based preschools who are paying way less than us and actually probably having their teachers need to work way more, how are they supposed to find quality educators or people or provide them with the professional development that they need to be excellent educators at this really important time in um, children's development? And it's really a crisis that we we need to address. Great. I'm going to give uh, Anna the last word uh, to she sits uh, in the catbird seat uh, looking at not only helping people work in the classroom, but also uh, as a system, uh, what early childhood, Jewish early childhood looks like in Chicago. Wondering what you're seeing, Anna, and what uh, policies you think can can help make a difference. Well, one thing I'm hearing from Carla and Abby is that in some ways they're able to have a leg up in recruitment. The working conditions in the schools that they run are going to be much better than in your average early childhood center. Just the fact that you're uh, uh, at Abbey School, you're still having the whole summer off. In Carla School, you have the option. Do you want to work for some of the summer or not? You're still getting off for these breaks, uh, winter break, spring break. Uh, that's very reasonable. 
um, that's a reasonable way to work. You're getting uh, a benefits package that's the whole staff gets. There are still Jewish day schools that don't pay the same for early childhood as uh, older uh, teachers of older grades, and that should that should change. Um, so they're getting best best access to the pool, let's say. Um, and what I admire about them and our whole community is the way that they stand in solidarity with uh, the whole early childhood field and take their time to advocate uh, for the field as a whole. Uh, we need more philanthropy in early childhood. We need government support. I'm not here to advocate for government support for day schools or not, but in the early childhood sector in general, uh, in those synagogue programs, uh, in Jewish community center programs, we need government dollars and we need really smart public policy and we need advocates uh, like Carl and Abby and all their teachers and everyone to keep standing up and speaking up and using their own voices to correct the policy when it's not uh, being implemented in ways that are actually helpful. Uh, I think we need to I mean, the, the obvious stand we need to take to me is for pay parity, which means, as Abby raised, the wages of public school educators in your local area, that's what we're going for. Um, and we have to keep in mind that the wage that they might be making might be for working only 36 weeks a year or 40 weeks a year. So we need to make sure uh, that these working conditions are better. And it, we know it can't come on the backs of parents. So I think that the answer remains being very active with our public officials, because this is a, a nationwide issue, being very active in our advocacy, looking for complex solutions, not one single solution. And the money can't be coming off the backs of teachers and it can't be any further coming on the backs of the parents because they don't have enough to spend on it. And what you see in a Jewish day school sort of shows what the problem is with the market of early childhood, what Janet Yellen has called a broken market. Uh, which is that a day school can spread out its cost centers and its loss leaders throughout the whole school. Uh, so they can figure out a balanced budget. I mean, we look at, in my office, we look at the financial benchmarks of all the programs in our city, and we can see that day schools are losing money on their early childhood centers, but it's okay because it's worth it and they're making it up somewhere else. What's happening now in early childhood um, outside of day schools is that the only place where you can make a little bit more money, a little bit, is in the fours and the three-year-old programs because you can have a bigger class size. But those programs are getting squeezed out into the public sector right now in a lot of cities in the U.S. And what's going to be left for private programs and for the average program is going to be infants and toddlers and two-year-olds. And those are the most expensive programs. And if those are going to get squeezed out, we just need a ton of philanthropy and a ton of government dollars to make that all possible. Because we need this incredible thing that's early childhood. From any perspective you look at it, I mean, again, if we were here with the brain science, we would just say, there's only one thing that's important, which is the first three years of life. It sets everything up. These issues, you know, I'm sure we could talk about uh, in over many podcasts, uh, but it's important not to just escape by them either, because it's foundational to the ability of our schools to perform this holy, this holy work with our students. So thank you, Abby, Carla, and thank you for sharing the amazing work that you do for giving us a real audio file inside your classrooms, inside your schools. Thank you, Anna, for supporting for all you do to support the work of, of these leaders and so many more in Chicago and beyond. Um, and it was really an, an honor to have you. I'm really glad we were able to 
I'd have a podcast about early childhood, which we unfortunately hadn't, hadn't done before, and I hope we have the opportunity to do many more. Uh, so I wish you all much success and uh, hope you have some, some good uh, downtime over the summer as well. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast five stars and share it with your friends and on social media. You can follow our podcasts by searching for Prisma on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. To learn more about Prisma, go to our website at www.prisma.org and follow us at Prisma CJDS. Prisma's work, including this podcast, is made possible by generous funders who believe deeply in the power of a great Jewish day school education. Visit prisma.org to add your name to the growing list of donors supporting day schools across North America. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed and we'll come back again soon for future episodes.